America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on the Kingdom of Denmark, a strong economic and security partner of the United States. Our guest is His Excellency Anders Fogh Rasmussen. Mr. Rasmussen has been at the center of European and global politics for over three decades as a leading Danish parliamentarian, Danish Minister of Economic Affairs, Prime Minister of Denmark, and finally as Secretary General of NATO. Upon leaving NATO, Mr. Rasmussen founded his strategic advisory firm, Rasmussen Global. He is also the chairman of the Alliance of Democracies Foundation, a nonprofit organization for the advancement of democracy and free markets across the globe. Denmark is strategically located between the North and Baltic Seas, comprising the Jutland Peninsula and over 400 islands, as well as its self-governing territories of Greenland and the Faroe Islands. The Kingdom of Denmark is the oldest monarchy in Europe, with current Queen Margrethe II tracing her ancestry to the Vikings. The Vikings ruled Scandinavia from the 8th century to the mid-11th century. The baptism of Danish King Harald Bluetooth in 965 CE instituted an era of Christian influence in Danish society. Waves of Nordic unity, rivalry, and European wars shaped Danish governance in the following centuries. The Kalmar Union of 1397 joined Denmark, Sweden, and Norway under the rule of Queen Margrethe I. Sweden broke from the Kalmar Union in 1523, in one of multiple clashes that led Denmark to ceding key territories to Sweden in the 17th and the 19th centuries. The Danish Constitution of 1849 established Denmark as a bicameral parliamentary constitutional monarchy, and the Constitution of 1953 instituted a unicameral system and protections for civil rights. The United States and Denmark have enjoyed a peaceful and productive relationship. The two countries established diplomatic ties in 1801, and Denmark sold the Danish West Indies, today known as the U.S. Virgin Islands, to the United States in 1917. Denmark declared neutrality in World War I, though Germany leveraged Denmark's trade dependence on it to influence Denmark toward the Central Powers. World War I prompted another shift in Danish territory. Iceland gained sovereignty in 1918 as a kingdom that shared the Danish monarchy. Though Denmark declared neutrality once more in World War II, Nazi Germany occupied Denmark without significant resistance. The British subsequently occupied Iceland, and a national referendum created the Republic of Iceland in 1944. After the war, Denmark became a founding member of NATO and the United Nations. Today, Denmark is the only Nordic member of both NATO and the European Union, and the United States and Denmark partner closely on issues of international security and trade. Despite its small size, Denmark is one of the most active NATO allies supporting U.S. operations. Danish troops have been in Iraq and Afghanistan and incur high per capita casualties in combat. 
The Danish Air Force has flown missions against ISIS, and its Navy has sailed in anti-piracy operations. The United States and Denmark are strong trade partners and share investments in areas such as pharmaceuticals. Its government structure and safety have made it a destination for immigrants and asylum seekers from around the world. Denmark is a global leader in renewable energy and sustainability, as well as a pioneer in high-tech agriculture and maritime shipping solutions. Danish scientists lead efforts to overcome the interrelated challenges of climate security, food and water security, and energy security. With control of Greenland, Denmark is a key player in discussions of the administration and protection of the Arctic. We welcome Prime Minister Rasmussen ahead of the 2021 NATO summit in Brussels, Belgium, and as global markets emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic. Prime Minister Rasmussen, welcome to Battlegrounds. It was great to see you, at least on Zoom, at the Copenhagen Democracy Summit. And, uh, and I appreciate you joining me and our audience, uh, because I know you're going to provide us with tremendous insights and perspective on the challenges and opportunities we, we face across the free world. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Well, I just th I thought we'd just dive right in to take full advantage of, of your time. And I, I wanted to begin by talking about first the Baltic region and uh, Denmark, uh, of course, from your time as prime minister well before that, <laughs> had, a, had a key role. Uh, during the Cold War, in, in keeping the Soviet uh, Union in check, uh, checking its its aggressiveness mainly uh, by by the use of its submarine force uh, that, that that could have bottled up the Soviet Navy in, in the Baltic, we took a little bit of a holiday from great power competition, you know, in, in the 1990s. I think under the assumption that a that that an arc of history had guaranteed the primacy of our free and open societies over closed authoritarian systems. But of course, now it seems as if great power competition is back with a vengeance and, and kind of in a new form. And I wonder if you might comment what, what you see as Denmark's role today uh, in keeping Russian offensive forays in, in check. Do you think NATO is strong enough you know, to keep the Baltic Sea open uh, in case of a conflict or strong enough to hopefully deter conflict with Russia? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, I would say... NATO could do more, but NATO has done a lot more uh, in recent years. You're quite right uh, that uh, in the wake of uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism, we thought we had entered a new era and uh, we started to decrease uh, our investments uh, in defense. But not least, the Russian aggression against uh, Ukraine 2014 was an eye-opener. And we have seen a stronger Russian presence in the Baltic uh, region uh, as well. So the, the role of Denmark will be exactly the same in the coming years to keep the Russians at bay. And um, in that respect, uh, we are pursuing in particular, two uh, roads. Firstly, we are participating in the air policing uh, of uh, the Baltic uh, states. Um, and secondly, uh, Denmark is also actively participating in um, uh, the NATO uh, forward uh, presence uh, 
uh, enhanced forward presence uh, in in the east. Um, uh, we um, have had 200 uh, Danish troops as part of NATO's uh, enhanced forward presence in Estonia up until uh, 2020. And we are due to rotate there again uh, in March uh, 2022. So Denmark is still active uh, in countering Russian aggression in the Baltic region. And I think this is the key, obviously, is to deter by denial, right? To convince Russia it could not accomplish its objectives through the use of force. And as you mentioned, you know, really important for us to realize uh, that they, that uh, that Russia continues to be aggressive vis-a-vis Ukraine. Denmark and Norway are, of course, NATO members. Sweden's not, uh, but but uh, but participates along with other NATO allies in various operations and and considers itself. I, I think the phrase is received and uh, and and a provider of, of security. Uh, in the region. What, what are your thoughts about the future of, of Baltic and Nordic defense? Do you think Sweden um, will or, or should join NATO? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, to, to, on the latter, if Sweden should join NATO, my answer is yes. <laughs> I think Sweden should join NATO and Sweden fully qualifies for joining NATO and Sweden would be welcomed wholeheartedly should Sweden decide to join uh, NATO. But uh, I will refrain from interfering in the Swedish debate. Uh, But we have seen actually uh, an increased support for Swedish membership of uh, NATO uh, during uh, recent years. And there is an ongoing, sometimes a bit heated discussion in Sweden In that respect, I think Putin is of great help to us because uh, uh, the Russian uh, pressure uh, on its neighbors in the Baltic region, including Sweden and Finland, by the way, uh, has uh, strengthened those forces that believe uh, in uh, Swedish and also Finnish membership uh, of of, uh, NATO as the best security guarantee. Having said that, uh, we have already a very close partnership uh, with Sweden uh, and Finland. Um, uh, Sweden uh, is, uh, and Finland are, I would say, the closest partners uh, we do have and they could join NATO overnight uh, if they decided to do so, because they have really uh, built up a military that fulfills uh, the criteria, uh, the standards um, uh, for being active uh, NATO members. And Sweden, for instance, has also participated actively uh, in NATO-led operations in Afghanistan, Kosovo, Iraq, and also uh, in in Libya. I think uh, Sweden is prepared, but it's for them to take uh, the decision. There there has been a pattern of aggression by Russia. I think that has woken everybody up. We should maybe send uh, Mr. Putin some flowers and a box of chocolates in terms of of focusing everybody on the importance of NATO. And and of course, this goes back to the denial of service attacks against Estonia in 2007, the invasion of Georgia, and obviously Ukraine remains a real focus of Russian aggression and, and, and intimidation. We see the, the recent expansion of its control over the Black Sea, 
uh, and now it has this consistent presence in the Eastern Mediterranean as well. And I, what are your thoughts about what Russia is trying to achieve and, and how that fits in to what they've been trying to achieve in, in the Baltic Sea and, and really, really across this range of sort of westward pushes by Russia? Yeah, I think uh, Russia, uh, no, let me put it this way. I consider Russia a regional spoiler. Um, Russia does not have uh, the capacity to, to really disturb uh, uh, the, the world order as such. In that respect, it's a clear difference between Russia and China. Russia is a declining society. China is a rising society. That makes a difference. And we can speak about China later. But uh, Russia uh, can destabilize security uh, in, in Europe and Middle East in the near neighborhood. And they do. And um, they are pursuing, I would say, th uh, three, um, three uh, paths uh, to achieve their goals militarily, economically, and politically. Militarily, they have destabilized uh, Eastern Ukraine and next Crimea into the Russian Federation. Uh, they have uh, de facto occupied parts of uh, Georgia. And uh, in Moldova, uh, Russia has uh, contributed to a frozen conflict in, the, so in Transnistria, which is a region in, in Moldova. But it is in Russia's interest to keep those conflicts frozen conflicts to uh, weaken their neighbors and prevent them from joining the Western alliances, NATO and European Union. Economically, uh, Russia is uh, putting pressure uh, on its uh, neighbors in Central Eastern uh, Europe. One example is uh, the new Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, through the Baltic Sea. Another example is um, uh, the port system in the Baltic Sea. Actually, um, uh, Russia uh, represents only 7% of the coastline in the Baltic Sea, but around 50% uh, of the trade from Russia is passed through the ports in the Baltic Sea. And now they're building their own ports to circumvent uh, the ports of their neighbors uh, in uh, Eastern and Central uh, Europe to deprive them uh, from economic uh, benefits. And finally, Russia is also pursuing political goals uh, through meddling into uh, democratic processes in other countries, uh, through disinformation campaigns, through intimidation of uh, internal, external critics of the system in the Kremlin. So <laughs> uh, they have very clear goal and they are pursuing uh, th uh, th those goals uh, through a three-pronged uh, strategy. It does seem to me that, that Putin is, he's cognizant of the limitations in his strength, his limitations in economic strength and in conventional forces. And, and what some people have called Russian new generation warfare, the combination of these elements of power that you mentioned, aims to accomplish Russia's objectives, maybe below the threshold of what might elicit 
a concerted military response from Russia. You know, NATO's been looking at this quite hard. We had the report of the NATO Reflection Group. NATO's working on a new strategic concept. We have, you know, we we have uh, we have a very important conference coming up. And I just wonder if you'd share your thoughts on what more NATO needs to do uh, to, to focus on deterring Russia and deterring, of course, what we always want to deter, the worst we can imagine, right? A, a, a large-scale conflict that could lead to a nuclear conflict. But, but, but how do we deter this Russian new generation warfare? What more can NATO do? I'd point to, to three elements. Firstly, we should continue investing more in our defense. In that respect, uh, President Trump uh, used very harsh rhetoric, and it helped, I think, uh, to promote uh, more uh, European investment in defense. In 2014, we decided that within the next decade, all allies should live up to uh, at least 2% of their GDP in defense uh, investment. And more and more uh, Member states do that. So we are on the right track. We should continue that as deterrence against Russian aggression. Secondly, we should ensure uh, investments in more modern capabilities uh, within hybrid uh, warfare. Because you're quite right. Russia tries uh, to circumvent uh, the NATO Article 5. Article 5, as we all know, is a famous article that states that we consider an attack on one and an attack on all. So Russia knows that they have no chance to win a conventional battle, but they are trying to lower, so to speak, uh, uh, the threshold uh, for an activation of uh, Article uh, 5 by using other means uh, including cyber attacks um, uh, and um, hybrid warfare, meddling in other countries' affairs, etc., etc. And then the third element would be more unity within our alliance. Uh, I mean, uh, we can do a lot more if we, under American leadership, demonstrates a key unity across uh, the Atlantic. So I hope the upcoming NATO summit will be such a demonstration of transatlantic unity. It's uh, uh, Russia and China, I think both prime ministers are trying to, trying to break apart the alliance and <laughs> disrupt the alliance, at least to reduce our, our confidence in, in our collective security. And, 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 uh, and, and of course, there are some direct threats, you know, in connection with increasing military capabilities you know, China is already present in the geographic theater of NATO in southeastern Europe and the Mediterranean, and it continues to pursue a range of activities, maybe more economic even than, than, than Russia, economic activities uh, in the realm of technology with, with trying to dominate you know, five-generation communications uh, infrastructure. How, how do you see, Nate, what do you think NATO's role is in connection with various forms of Chinese aggression, this this campaign China's been waging of co-option, co-opt company, co companies and countries into its orbit with the, the, the promise of investment or access to the Chinese market, and then coercion, coercing, coercing these companies to support uh, China's promotion yeah. of its mercantilist uh, authoritarian model. 
uh, and then to conceal its activities as just normal business practices. It's a, it seems to me a very pernicious threat. To, what, what's NATO's role, do you think, in, in the competition uh, with an increasingly aggressive Chinese Communist Party? Yeah, that's really the key issue in the coming years, in my opinion, because while Russia can be a regional spoiler, China is already a global spoiler uh, of the world order. So we, we have to address this and we need a new strategy uh, towards uh, this uh, Chinese uh, assertiveness. Um, and that also goes for NATO. NATO should realize that territorial defense in today's world does not stop at our borders. Uh, China is an example of a country uh, that tries to spread its influence across the globe. Uh, and uh, also NATO has to uh, address uh, this new challenge. In the past, it was excluded that NATO member states even discussed China. But a couple of years ago at the NATO summit in London, first, the first step was taken to address this new challenge. And I am convinced that uh, the upcoming NATO summit uh, will have to deal uh, with uh, China in a much more concrete way. Um, and as far as China is concerned, we see exactly the same strategy deployed as in the case of Russia, that is militarily, economically, and politically, we see China um, exercise uh, influence all over the globe. And that's not in the interest uh, of the world's free societies. You know, Prime Minister, one of the topics that is, I'm sure are going to come up at the NATO summit is the role of the EU in, in defense efforts. This is an issue that's been talked about for, for many years. And I, I just I, I wondered if you might comment on, on how, what you see the role is for the EU in, in deterring Russia. Should the EU be developing its, its own military capabilities separate from or complementary to or integrated with, with, uh, with NATO? Uh, and how effective is the EU at competing with with China? Uh, and and what's your position on on the role of the EU in collective defense? And and is is that a problem in connection with maybe diminishing the role of uh, of NATO if the EU were to were, were to follow uh, uh, President Macron's <laughs> challenge you know, for the EU to become more more capable militarily? Actually, you're raising two issues. One is uh, European defense capabilities, and the other one is how to address uh, China. So if I would, st I would start with, with China, um, I, I think Europe has become less naive when it comes to addressing the Chinese aggression in recent years. But first of all, I would like to stress um, some circles in Europe tend to believe that Europe could play, so to speak, a moderating role between the United States and China. This is the strategic autonomy argument. 
<laughs> that's a strategic autonomy <laughs> argument. Yes, that's right. In my opinion, that is a fundamental mistake. Uh, what we're witnessing these years is uh, a battle between dictatorship and democracy. And in that battle, you cannot stay neutral. There is no ideological equality between the United States and China. We have to counter the autocracy represented by the Chinese Communist Party and side with America in the fight for freedom. Maybe we can revert to that issue, but that's my basic point of view. Um, how could uh, Europe uh, counter the increasing Chinese uh, assertiveness? In the economic field, I think uh, Europe has already a lot of tools. We have seen how China has uh, made strategic investments in strategically important infrastructure and within strategically important uh, business sectors in recent years that did so in the wake of the financial crisis. And they are ready to do exactly the same in the wake of uh, the corona uh, crisis. So we have to introduce screening mechanisms that are much more strict than the current screening mechanisms to avoid a Chinese takeover of strategically important assets uh, in, in, uh, in Europe. Um, the Chinese are, are also uh, pursuing um, or making uh, economic coercion, as you mentioned. Uh, private companies have been exposed to consumer boycotts uh, in China because they have underlined the need for respecting human rights uh, in, in China. Australia has been exposed to uh, a boycott of, or at least sanctions on Australian wine and other uh, products. Uh, and I could mention other countries as well. I think we need much more cooperation between the world's democracies and also within the European Union solidarity to um, prevent that kind of uh, Chinese uh, blackmailing. And finally, China is also exercising unfair trade practices, stealing our technology, competing with our companies uh, uh, with uh, state subsidies uh, to help their own uh, companies. Uh, and um, our screening mechanisms should prevent that kind of unfair trade practices as well. And within the WTO, uh, GO, uh, the World Trade Organization, we should insist on full compliance uh, with fair trade practices. I think in those areas, the European Union has a lot of tools at its disposal. And Prime Minister, how do you see the trend? Are you optimistic about it? I, I think China has obviously targeted countries that it thinks it's most are most vulnerable to its campaign of co-option and coercion and concealment. I'm thinking, for example, Hungary or Serbia in particular, which has said it, it volunteers to be China's aircraft carrier in Europe. You had uh, Italy sign up for One Belt, One Road and see massive Chinese investments 
really ac across Europe, but focused in some key strategic locations like port facilities in Greece. Do, do you think that, that have we reached bottom in connection with uh, countries uh, really failure to recognize the danger associated uh, with with these sorts of investments made for strategic purposes, uh, and and, uh, and and do you think we're finally waking up to the challenge? Yeah, but all the examples you mentioned uh, are examples how uh, the Chinese are exercising uh, their strategy in in Europe, and we have seen that it has been increasingly difficult to achieve consensus within European Union in, for instance, the criticism of Chinese violation of uh, human rights. But I do believe that uh, Europeans have become uh, less naive. Um, uh, as as uh, an example, uh, I could mention um, the recent development just before Christmas, uh, the EU and China agreed in principle on a new investment deal between the EU and China. Much to the surprise, actually, uh, by the incoming Biden administration, also to my surprise. I mean, I had uh, hoped uh, for closer coordination between the, uh, Europe and America when it uh, comes to such strategically important agreements uh, with uh, China. But it was agreed, uh, but recently, China sanctioned a number of members of European Parliament, including a number of institutions uh, in uh, Europe, including my own Alliance of Democracies Foundation. Uh, and now I'm sure the European Parliament will not even speak about this new investment agreement as long as members of the Parliament are sanctioned uh, by, by China. So it's an example that there are limits as to how far the Chinese can go. And uh, the Europeans uh, have opened their eyes now uh, when it comes to, to China. You know, Prime Minister, you, you've been a leader and, and you're maybe the most prominent leader in, in terms of uh, promoting uh, democracy, strengthening democracy, getting people to recognize that, that we are in a competition. Uh, that has an ideological component. And as you mentioned, our rivals are authoritarian states, but they've, they've become much more sophisticated than authoritarian states that we've had to compete with in the past. Uh, they have money, as you mentioned, they're growing militarily, they're strengthening social cohesion, especially maybe with these aggressive forms of nationalism. And, and I, I, you know, the way I think about it these days is Jakob Riegel thinks about it. Uh, he, he, sees, uh, he sees Russia, China, and maybe even Iran establishing civilizational states that are built on really a conscious effort to distinguish themselves from the West. What, what do you see as the challenges of this type of ideological competition? Are our democracies, are we strong enough? Are we united enough internally and, and among each other? to face this, this, this ideological component of the threat? No, I, the disunity within uh, the community of free societies in, in the world is weakening us. And uh, this is one of the reasons uh, why we have seen autocracies advance uh, during recent years. I think it's fair to say that during, uh, that now we have seen the fifth 
consecutive year of decline in freedom and democracy uh, in, in the world. So we cannot take freedom and democracy for granted. This is the reason why we have to raise our voice to counter the ad advancing autocracies much stronger than in the past. My ambition would be to create an alliance of democracies. Uh, an alliance of the world's free societies would represent 60% of the global economy. That's a formidable force that would create a lot of respect, I think, uh, not only in Beijing, but also in, in Moscow and in other uh, capitals of autocratic uh, states. So if the world's democracies could really unite around certain principles, then we have a chance to uh, protect and promote uh, the principles upon which we have built our free societies. In America, you have had a National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence that has worked and recently published a, a, a report which I would recommend to everybody. <laughs> and in that report, uh, the commission recommends, uh, so to speak, a technological alliance of democracies that uh, the world's democracies should unite around certain principles for the use of new technology. I think we all agree that artificial intelligence, for instance, can be used for peaceful purposes to make our daily lives uh, easier, but it can also be used to monitor people, to control people, as the Chinese do. And we have to make sure, we who are living in free societies, we have to make sure that it's our principles, it's the freedoms, it's the principles of freedom and democracy uh, that will be the, the global standards and norms for use of uh, new uh, technology. Uh, so that's just one example how an alliance of democracies could work. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear you recommend this AI commission report. I'm a big fan of it as well. I'm a little bit biased, though, because my old chief of staff, uh, Billy Bajraktari, ran that project. But I, I agree. The findings and recommendations are really clear, and, and, and they ought to, I think, help bring us together around a common agenda. And is, So I, I wondered you know, what, what more we might be able to do to help convince the private sector that they are part of this competition, right? I mean, we have... We have, uh, you know, the Nord Stream 2 issue, for example, in, in Germany, which has been much discussed. But there are many other issues involving 5G communications. We just had Belarus mm. hijack a Orion Air, uh, an Orion Air airplane. Um, and, you know, of course, you already mentioned the course of uh, uh, actions of the Chinese Communist Party on on, uh, on clothing manufacturers, you know, in, in, uh, in China, forcing companies to to, uh, to deny Taiwan sovereignty, for example. So uh, what, what more can we do, do you think, to educate the private sector and to help them recognize they're part of this competition? And, and, uh, and what would your recommendations be for how the private sector can be part of this competition between mm. democracies and authoritarian regimes? Yeah, I have discussed that issue uh, on several occasions with uh, business uh, leaders and, and many business leaders uh, think, but I believe a bit naively, but they think 
that you can separate uh, politics and uh, business. But in the real world, that's not the case. And I think China is a, a terrible example of the mix of uh, politics and uh, business. As soon as you engage with China or Chinese businesses, you should be aware of the fact that you are engaging in de facto with the Chinese Communist Party as well. And many private companies are now exposed to consumer boycotts and retaliation from the Chinese. For instance, recently uh, the, the Chinese government uh, threatened the Swedish private company Ericsson uh, with retaliation if the Swedish government does not lift its ban against Huawei uh, in rolling out the 5G network in, in Sweden. So it's a clear example that you have an interconnection between business and politics in China that you should be aware of. So I think what we should do to help our private businesses to deal with this so would be to create what I would call an economic Article 5. <laughs> of course, my inspiration comes from my background as NATO Secretary General. As we have mentioned already, we do have the famous NATO military Article 5 that we consider an attack on one ally, an attack on all. Exactly the same should be the case when it comes to economy that the world's free societies should commit to the principle that if a specific country will be exposed to economic blackmail or coercion from China, then we will help that specific country. And we should provide credit facilities for private companies that are exposed to such retaliatory measures uh, from the Chinese government so that they can finance uh, actually exiting uh, uh, from uh, China uh, to, to other countries or at least redefine their supply chains. So I think we can do much more to help each other within the community of uh, democracies or free societies uh, in the world. And, and you mentioned Australia already. I think Australia was the wake-up call for this, right? I think this was the Chinese trying to kill one to scare a hundred. And we do have to work together because otherwise they'll just, China will just take a, a divide and conquer approach on this. And and uh, and, and I, I really think this is the, the most important maybe battleground in, in connection with the, the, the competition with China. You know, we do, we do have some economic tools uh, Prime Minister, you know, we, we use sanctions, for example, to 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 punish or impose costs on Russia for the war in Ukraine, its occupation of Crimea for its interference in domestic politics in the U.S. and Europe. Uh, and but do you, what is your assessment of how effective sanctions have been as, as a tool of, of foreign policy? Are, are they mitigating, in this case, Russia's behavior? Uh, do you think they might in, in the future or do you think we need to think of other uh, more effective means of, of, of coercion or, 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 or application of, of economic tools of statecraft? Uh, I'm a free trainer. 
<laughs> so I do believe in free trade as the most efficient uh, tool, uh, but let me revert to this in a couple of minutes. Um, first, I would say, in the lack of uh, military confrontation with Russia or China, I do believe that sanctions may be the best tool we have at our disposal. Uh, but to make the sanctions effective, we need unity among the world's democracies and also across uh, the Atlantic. We need to act swiftly. Um, and um, on the latter, we have seen how the European Union could act uh, swiftly on Belarus after the unaccept unacceptable hijacking, so, so to speak, of, of the the Ryanair plane, uh, but no action has been seen yet. On Russia, we have the problem that uh, sanctions against Russia will have to be renewed every six months and it requires unanimity. Uh, and uh, all that stuff uh, make, makes sanctions ineffective. So I do believe that sanctions are the best tool we do have at our disposal, but we need to improve this instrument. Having said that, I think in the long run, it's much more efficient if we um, increase or strengthen free trade between the world's democracies, because that would serve as a brilliant example, a good story uh, of how democracies could flourish uh, through uh, free trade. For example, why not create a, a transatlantic free trade area, TAFTA, <laughs> uh, to remove trade barriers, to remove um, uh, all duties on all goods, etc. Of course, we should take into account consumer, uh, consumer protection, etc. But let's take on the great perspective. Um, uh, I, I do believe that free trade is to the benefit of all people. Uh, and uh, if we could create incentives to agree on more free trade agreements among the world's democracies, then we could uh, demonstrate a telling story to the world's autocracies. Uh, so in the longest perspective, I think free trade will be better than sanctions. Yeah, I think, and I think the operative word is, is really reciprocity. And of course, you know that there are many U.S. concerns about access to the, uh, to the European Union market that have prevented really uh, much progress on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a new trade deal there. And, 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 uh, and this is a very important aspect of the, of the U.S.-European uh, uh, re relationship um, it is it is the core alliance we have. So I think the, the strengthening economic ties. How could that be bad? That would be good. <laughs> and, uh, and and of course, it's a key aspect of competing against China. I think there there has to be a correlation between Germany's over reliance on exports to China and the fact that Chancellor Merkel was the big champion of the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment for for China. So I think I think this this is all interconnected, as as you've mentioned, in in a, in a way that is. I think maybe unprecedented in terms of the threat of authoritarian regimes that are so active 
uh, with forms of economic uh, economic coercion. And and so I, I would just uh, in, in closing, I'd like just to ask you for your general thoughts. You know what uh, what more can can we do in the transatlantic community to strengthen the relationship across the Atlantic, especially the U.S. relationship uh, with Europe? Um, what can we do from a diplomatic, a political perspective, but from a commercial and technological perspective? What is what is top on on your agenda? Yeah, uh, let me uh, refer to to one of your previous uh, questions uh, about the European uh, defense. Um, I, I think one of uh, one of the the important elements in strengthening the transatlantic tie. Uh, would be that the Europeans take more responsibility uh, for their own uh, security. Uh, I've never been against uh, more European defense investments. On the contrary, I think a strengthening of the European pillar within NATO uh, would also uh, improve the overall relationship between uh, America and Europe. Fair burden sharing, that is a cornerstone in a good relationship across uh, the Atlantic. So that's one thing. Uh, secondly, uh, I already mentioned uh, trade. Uh, I'm, I'm pleased to see that some of the immediate uh, hurdles or obstacles uh, in the trade relationship <clears throat> between uh, the U.S. Uh, and uh, Europe uh, have been uh, removed, but I really think we have to think big. Uh, so that's why I'm in favor of um, a, a transatlantic uh, free trade uh, agreement. Of course, you should not be restricted to the transatlantic area, but uh, let's start here uh, because uh, we, I mean, between America and Europe, we, we share not only interests, uh, but, but also ideology. Uh, and that's why we believers in democracy and freedom, uh, we should be the front runners in promoting uh, global uh, free trade. And finally, I think it's important also to have a dialogue uh, between America and, and Europe. In that respect, I think a down-to-earth proposal would be to open for free travel again <laughs> between Europe and the United States. It's been uh, stopped now for more than a year because of the corona crisis. Uh, as vaccinations have now uh, been uh, so widespread, I, I do believe that the condition is fulfilled for a reopening of travel across the Atlantic. We should not underestimate the value of the interpersonal interaction uh, across uh, the, the Atlantic. So these are some important elements in improving the transatlantic relationship. Well, Prime Minister Rasmussen, thank you for that wide ranging and so informative and insightful discussion. On behalf of the Hoover Institution, uh, I, I think we. I speak for all of our audience as well uh, to to tell you that uh, we've learned a great deal from you about battlegrounds important to building a, a future of peace and prosperity 
for generations to come. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thank you very much, General, and uh, thank you for your many years of service, uh, not only for the United States, but for global freedom and security. Thank you. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.